Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 93. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Yes, hello everyone. Hello and welcome. Show 93, British science fiction writer Neil Asher. There you go. I hope everyone will join me. I'll give you a little heads up. What's happening today? We have some poetry by G.O. Clark. Flash fiction comes from Randall Head. We have Mr. G.J. Campanella. Science news for July. See, main fiction is by British science fiction writer Neil Asher. And the story's done with professional narration, no doubt as well, by Peter Seaton Clark. Before we get into the main show, I'd like to play a little promo as well for the Gamma Quadrant podcast. Now, Deep Space Nine, me and Kieran Lear, man. actually, when I listened to the, the podcast, the Gamma Quadrant, you know, it's 1993 when kind of Deep Space Nine was kicking around. You know, that's a few years ago. Me and Kieran, you know, a lot of my friends were kind of well into it. That's, and to be quite honest, the podcast is, it's, it's bringing all the memories back and that's great. And what I like about it is that the three over there who are doing the podcast, Seth, Ryan and Valerie, they haven't seen the shows for, you know, probably since the, maybe the first time they came out. So it's, everything's refreshed, you know, and watching it again for the first time, you know, is it that good? Is it, you know, hammy as anything, you know, so it's, it's good for them and it's good for a listener like myself to listen to it. You know, it's a great podcast, you know, it's Deep Space Nine, you either love them or hate them, but it just, it holds a special part in my kind of times. So I'm going to play this promo. Please pop over there and, you know, support them. They're just kicking off show number seven, I think, is out there now. So it would be amazing if you couldn't support them and listen to them. Do you have strong feelings about Ferengi? 
So I think the Ferengi are great in DS9. They really fleshed them out, and you learned a lot about them. You learn a lot of stuff that you don't want to know about them. They flesh them out to be annoying characters. They are not that bad. Quark's pretty cool. Do you like Star Trek fashions? What about Jake Sisko? He has the coolest fashions. Hmm, do I like the overalls the best or the little vest? It's really hard <laughs> to pin it down. Yeah, his outfits are fantastic. I love them all. Do you feel like Deep Space Nine never gets the credit it deserves? I think everyone gave up on it before it became its own show. You know, myself included originally, and I'm glad yeah. I came back. Yeah, I went away and came back, and the whole Dominion thing brought me back in. It's very good. It's got great characters. It is, and the more I watch season one, the more I'm gaining a new appreciation of it. If so, join us for the Gamma Quadrant, the only podcast dedicated to all things Deep Space Nine. We discuss the series episode by episode every week. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and on our website, gammaquadrant.libsyn.com. And Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N. If you listen to the introduction to the Gamma Quadrant podcast, they pick out their kind of favourite actors, you know, their favourite shows and, you know, the, everything to do with like, the favourites and the worst as well, which is actually quite nice to listen to. And I'm sure they didn't mention, but my, uh, they didn't pick this show, but my favourite show, Deep Space Nine, Far Beyond the Stars, that was season six. What a show. And maybe because it's science fiction, you know what I mean? That Cisco has these visions of being like a kind of 19, I think 1950s science fiction writer. And it's all to do with kind of race. You know, he's like a black African American writing like a story about this captain who's black as well. And it's all covers them kind of issues. And what a, what acting. Do you know what I mean? So listen, please go over to the Gamma Quadrant podcast and find out. I'll put a link on the front of the website. If you didn't catch the web address, do click on, do subscribe. Tell me your favourite, Deep Space Nine. So just before we get into the main show, just a little editorial. It's again, just a little shout out for narrators. If you want to come and narrate, drop us a line. That would be fantastic. Flash Fiction, if you want to write something for the Starship Sova so we get it narrated and get your story out there, send it over. It can be fantasy, science fiction, horror. Make it... at the most 1600 words and send it over to sofaslush at gmail.com that's where Grant will go go through like a fine tooth comb if you have a fact article that you're thinking about might be interesting for the listeners do pop over and tell us about that as well another shout out which is I'm going to actually do like a meta show just on you know the kind of the, the engine room the workings of you know like a, a year down the line of starships with us oral delights where i think it's going to go what's happening with them you know what's going on that way and leading up to that i'm still on the hunt for if you know this is like a, a big thing for me now if you know anyone who's like an iphone developer who actually can write the iphone apps developments you know, give us a shout because I'm desperate to try and get an iPhone app developer. I'm nearly there sometimes, but then it, it kind of falls through. So if you've got any skill in writing iPhone apps and you maybe want to help out on Starship Sova, you know, that would be amazing. That would be truly amazing. I've got a great team working on other things, which will be all part of this metacast that I'm going to do. So if that is number one on my priority list there, number one on the old girls list Starship Sovas needs an iPhone developer. If you know someone, let us know. Also, the forums have been down for a few days. Hopefully, that's a good thing. Yeah. 
I'd, it might be actually up now while I'm recording this on Monday and the show goes out Wednesday. So fingers crossed, it might be all up and sorted and it means we're running on our own. You know, but I can't say too much because it's at this moment it's not up. But just bear with me if it's still not up on Wednesday. And we're approaching my holidays, my summer holidays. And I'm not too sure how to bridge this gap. There's going to be around about three weeks where I've either got to maybe try and pre-record the shows or take a little hiatus for three weeks. Just recharge the batteries. We'll see how it goes, you know what I mean? Let me know. I'm more than happy to kind of record the shows, you know what I mean? I'm sure my good wife won't mind. <laughs> you know, but I can either let really take... This is what I was thinking as well, mind you. Maybe take a few weeks off and let everyone catch up, do you know what I mean? Because even regular listeners, you know, I'm charging ahead there. You know, big, big, long shows, some of these ones, and not everyone gets a chance to complete them. So anyway, there's some thoughts, we'll see how it goes, but let's kick off with some poetry by G.O. Clark. I've just been given some more poems by Gary Clark, and they're amazing, do you know what I mean? So look out for them coming soon as well. And it's narrated by, as ever, Julie Davis, our good friend, Forgotten Classics. Link's on the front of the website. Millennial Mass by G.O. Clark On the altar of a forgotten age... Fragments of a contrail and sonic boom subsided. The flickering electronic glow from an abandoned family room. An old tin box full of universal toy soldiers, broken in pieces. A cracked tachometer, pointer forever frozen in the red. And the old book of law from a religion long ago digitized. All darkly blessed by the silver-skinned priest. The future etched in his stained-glass eyes. Next up is Flash Fiction, and it's by Randall Head. Randall Head is an attorney living in Kentucky who never ceases to be amazed. The story is autobiographical in that it really happened to him in September the 26th, 1982. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present Meet by Randall Head. The Meat by Randall Head. I've been sitting here for weeks, maybe months, maybe years, I'm not sure but for weeks at least. Time has a different meaning here than it does down there. I can remember the meat sitting in class, wishing it would end, and then sitting on the front porch of the student center, wishing its life wasn't so boring, and then going home and wishing someone else had gone home with it, and then getting up and going to school to start the process all over again. I remember Ivan Security on the front porch with Ben. Ivan Security's job was to keep the meat and its friends safe, and to keep the rest of the kids safe from the meat and its friends. Ivan Security used to carry a gun, but uh, he didn't have any bullets. He used to say he didn't need any bullets, but he couldn't explain why he did need a gun. He used to sit on the porch with the meat and its friends, but he wouldn't drink any of their beer. 
He'd quit drinking 20 years earlier. He'd talk about being in the war, but he never said which war. The meat used to say it was safe to assume that Ivan Security wasn't talking about the war on drugs. The meat and Ben used to think that was funny. Ivan Security is an old one now. He came to see me once, not long after the meat and I got here. The first old one to come to see me was Granddad. He told me there was nothing to be afraid of and that I wasn't ready to be an old one yet, so all I could do was hang out here, watching, until it was time for the meat to either check out and go home or check out and turn me into an old one. I really enjoy talking with the old ones, even Ivan Security. When Ivan Security was meat, he was dumb as a fucking post, but a really nice guy. And now that he's an old one, I don't suppose he's dumb anymore. But he's really quiet. Come to think of it, all the old ones I've met since I got here were really quiet while they were here. Granddad showed me a door. He said that when it was time for me to become an old one, I'd go through that door and that everything would change. I asked him what that meant, and he said, No more tears. No more tears. No troubles. No strife. No hunger. No pain. No loneliness. No more tears. What a concept. I can hardly wait. There you go, and that was just excellent. And it was narrated by Grizzly Growls as well. Go and check out Grizzly Growls. There will be a link on to his podcast as well. Next up is main man, JJ Campanella, with his July Science News. Jim. Good evening, gentle homos. Welcome to this evening's July 2009 edition of Science News Update. I'm your host, Jim Campanella, and I wish I could tell you from what piece of ancient SF in my youth I picked up that strangely disturbing greeting. This is a very special edition of the update because tonight we celebrate its one-year anniversary. I have enjoyed digging up interesting bits of information for you over the last year and presenting those tasty scientific tidbits. I thank Tony and all of my loyal listeners. I hope that you found this monthly silliness as enlightening as I have. I want you to all know that I think this podcast helps make me a better teacher and scientist, and I'm grateful for the opportunity. Before this descends into teary-eyed blather, let's get started here. I will now present a short audio clip to you that is related to the first story of the night. The clip is from the fourth season premiere episode of the very funny SFTV show Red Dwarf. Fans will immediately recognize the situation, but let me explain to those of you who are not familiar with what you hear. Dave Lister is a crewman aboard the mining ship Red Dwarf. He's chatting with an android by the name of Crichton. Lister is deeply concerned that Crichton cannot lie as a machine, and he's trying to encourage the mechanoid to break its programming by teaching it how to lie. Here, Lister is trying to explain the social importance of being able to lie. Oh, it's no good, sir. I just can't lie. I'm programmed always to tell the truth. Crichton, it's easy. Look, an orange, a melon, a female aardvark. Oh. <laughs> a 
that is just so superb, sir. How do you do that? Especially calling a banana an aardvark. An aardvark isn't even a fruit. <laughs> it's total genius. Let's start again. Oh, sir, my head is spinning. We've been doing this all morning. Frighten? I'm going to teach you how to lie and cheat if it's the last thing I do. I'm going to teach you to be unpleasant, cruel and sarcastic. It's the only way to break your programming, man. Make you independent. Well, I'm truly grateful, sir. Don't you think I'd love to be deceitful, unpleasant and offensive? Those are the human qualities I admire the most. But I just can't do it. You can. I can't. Look, what's this? No. What is it? Please. Come on, what is it? It's a... It's a... It's a small off-duty Czechoslovakian traffic warden. Yes, you did it, you did it. What's this? It's a red and blue striped golfing umbrella. Yes, what's this? It's an apple. No, it's a, it's what a, is it? It's, it's, it's the Bolivian Navy on maneuvers in the South Pacific. Oh, right, man, you can do it. No, I can't. Yes, you... Oh, oh, nice one. <laughs> well, I can't hang around here. I better go away and take the penguin for a walk. <laughs> I can do it. I did it again. I can lie. Come here. Come here. Check this. Check this. Check, check this. what? Concentrate, Crichton. What's this? It's a banana. What's this? It's an orange. What's this? You taught him that? That's terrific. You two should audition for What's My Fruit. You did it wrong, man. Oh, it gets better. I just can't do it. You can, you just did it. I, I just can't do it, not when there's someone else there. What's a suitable human analogy? It, it's like trying to urinate in a public lavatory when you're standing next to a man two foot taller than you. It's just not possible. What are you trying to do exactly? He's trying to teach me how to lie, sir. Any particular reason? Yeah. Lying's a vital part of your psychological defense system. You're naked without it. If you can't lie, then you can't conceal your true intentions from other people. Sometimes that's essential. I mean, like, take Nelson. When he put the telescope up to his blind eye and said, I see no ships. Or like Humphrey Bogart at the end of Casablanca, where he lies to Victor Laszlo to protect the guy's feelings. I understand the theory, sir. How many times have you made me watch that movie? I understand that it can be noble to lie. I just can't do it. You can't look. What's this? It's a banana. It always has been a banana. It always will be a banana. It's a yellow fruit that you unzip and eat the white bits. It's a banana. So what does that clip have to do with anything? Well, for a long time, anthropologists and biologists have believed that only humans can purposely mislead. Certainly, we know that plants and animals can mimic other plants and animals, or even landscape, in order to protect themselves or help procreate. But there have been no real instances of animals actively misleading others as humans might do. That is, real out-and-out lying. Well, it turns out that capuchin monkeys apparently have the ability to prevaricate as well, Dr. Brandon Wheeler and his associates of Stony Brook University published a paper at the end of June in the Proceedings of the Royal Society. The paper examined the social interactions of younger and older capuchins in a troop of monkeys. They found that capuchin monkeys can actually cry out the predator warning in monkey to trick more senior members of their troop into fleeing the dinner table. Of course, that leaves the food for the younger monkeys. Wheeler performed the work in Argentina. He started noticing at one point that a well-studied population of approximately 25 capuchin monkeys were giving hiccup calls when they shouldn't be. Hiccup calls are two-syllable cooing sounds commonly uttered in response to danger. Here's what it sounds like. (laughs) 
Wheeler said, quote, There was no apparent reason to give these calls other than to chase the other individuals off the food platform, unquote. To test out exactly what was going on with the calls, Wheeler placed highly valued banana pieces on a small feeding platform three to ten meters above the ground. He was not only able to elicit these calls at ten times the rate they occur in natural contexts, he was able to correlate this behavior with individual rank, food distribution, and proximity to food resources. With only one exception, the calls were produced exclusively by subordinate individuals. It makes sense because there would be no reason for dominant monkeys to call out like that because they could take whatever food they wanted anyway. There is still some question as to whether the monkeys are purposely misleading or not, though. The researchers say that, quote, it does look like tactical deception, unquote, but they have no way of knowing whether the monkeys are actually intending to deceive or not. There's a difference between intentional deception and what researchers refer to as functional deception. Functional deception falls into the category of the animals and plants that deceive by altering their body or color for protection. A plant that disguises itself as a rock to not be predated upon is performing functional deception. Intentional deception, on the other hand, is just what it sounds like. If the individual that's acting deceptively understands that they're creating false belief, then it is intentional. If the monkeys are intentionally being deceptive, then they understand that they are making the other group members believe there is a predator present. Researchers are already considering the evolution of alarm calls. It's possible that alarm calls among animals arose just as much from deception as from actual alarm. It may be the deception arose from calls that had a much broader range of meanings originally. The researchers suggest that deceptions could be a quote-unquote spandrel. That's a byproduct of the function of the original signal. Our next story is a bit of an update on one of our older ones. I have discussed DNA sequencing of the human genome before. I've mentioned that if you can afford to have it done... It's about $100,000. There's a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts called Canome, which will do it for you. You may remember that I predicted almost a year ago that the price would start to drop soon for whole genome sequencing. Well, that's beginning to happen now. Illumina, a genomics technology company headquartered in San Diego, California, announced the launch of a $48,000 genome sequencing service at the Consumer Genetics Conference in Boston at the end of June. This is a major breakthrough in price, and it will continue to fall. Illumina can do this because they themselves are major suppliers of equipment and reagents needed to actually perform the sequencing, so that they can do it more cheaply than someone who they are selling those apparatus and reagents to. Now, the other cool thing is that unlike most consumer genomics companies, which offer tests directly through the Internet, Illumina's genome sequencing service will require a physician's prescription. This tells me that they are actually serious and not a fly-by-night operation taking advantage of people as a fad. Even better, the company will implement a seven-day waiting period after an individual surrenders his saliva for analysis to give customers time to make sure that they truly want to know the contents of their genome. So for less than half the cost of Canome, you can know all the secrets squirreled away in your DNA. Or will you? What exactly are you getting for $48,000? Well, Illumina is performing a 30-fold coverage of the entire genome. An individual's DNA 
has to be analyzed multiple times to generate a comprehensive sequence. And that literally means that they will have to sequence your entire multi-billion base pair DNA 30 times in order to ensure that they have the correct sequence. So that sounds like a lot. It sounds like it's worth $48,000. But do you get anything else? Well, no, not really. Uh, Illumina is reading the code for you and making sure that it's right, but they are doing minimal analysis of your code for all that money. Instead, they're going to leave the genetic analysis to other companies. Illumina has announced partnerships with the other four major consumer genomics companies, Canome, 23andMe, Navigenics, and Decode. Jay Flatley, Illumina's CEO, said at the Consumer Genetics Conference that, quote, each company will develop its own analysis packages at an additional cost, and consumers will be able to pick the one that they want, unquote. You already know my opinion of 23andMe as a company from past podcasts. The idea of making your genome into an online Twitter-like discussion locus just seems more than a bit lowbrow to me in a very odd sort of way. And it just seems weird that Illumina would go to all the trouble of making you get a doctor's prescription to get your DNA sequenced, and then they would get clowns like that to help you analyze the sequences. I just hope that the other companies involved are a bit more respectful. But perhaps even Illumina is not quite as respectful of the human genome as they appear at first blush. The company is already developing an application for the iPhone that would allow consumers to interact with their genetic information in different ways. One example is a feature that determines whether their particular genome would interact well with particular drugs, such as those to lower blood pressure. Interesting, but also kind of gimmicky at the same time. You would think that you'd want your doctor to do that and not have to do it personally. It's turning out now that we are so good at sequencing DNA that the analysis of the genome, rather than the sequencing itself, is proving to be the most difficult aspect of personalized genomic medicine. While scientists have identified hundreds of genetic variations linked to the risk of specific diseases, the meaning of the vast majority of the genome is still pretty much unknown. And in most cases, scientists don't know yet how to combine genetic risk factors with the environmental risk factors to produce accurate predictions for any likelihood of developing a specific disease. So that even with your tricked-out iPhone, it may be years before you can completely trust those genomic analyses. By the way, how can I be so certain that the price is going to drop farther? Well, at that same genomic conference, another company, Complete Genomics, announced plans for a $5,000 sequencing service. Although this will initially be available only to academic institutions and industry for research and clinical trials rather than personal use. So unless you work for a university, you're out of luck for at least a few years. But this is proof of concept the prices will keep falling. Our next story of the evening concerns something that we all have, but pretty much ignore unless we clean windows or are hardened criminals or cops or have five-year-olds. I'm talking about fingerprints. Have you ever wondered why we have fingerprints? And not just humans, but a bunch of other animals have fingerprints as well. Koalas, tree-climbing monkeys... Basically, the purpose of fingerprints was something that scientists simply have been assuming for a very long time. The theory has been that fingerprints increase friction between the skin and whatever we grab onto, that they make it easier to hold onto objects. The idea has been around for over 100 years, but no one has ever directly tested that hypothesis. 
That is now over, ladies and gentlemen. The brave Dr. Roland Enos from the University of Manchester decided to take up the gauntlet and find out if that long-held assumption is true. Enos published his results of fingerprint friction studies in this July's issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology. Enos was keen to find out whether fingerprints improve our grip, so he recruited University of Manchester undergraduate Peter Warman to test out fingerprint friction with his own fingers. Enos set up a system to pull a piece of acrylic along his student's finger and measured the amount of friction between the two. He designed a system that could produce forces ranging from a moderate touch to a rigid grip that squashed the entire finger pad against the surface. And then he strapped in the volunteer's index finger into his machine to begin measuring the fingerprint's friction. After lots of experiments dragging the acrylic on fingers and thumbs, it was clear that something didn't quite jive with the previous hypothesis they were testing. Instead of the friction between finger and acrylic increasing in proportion to the amount that the acrylic was pushing against the finger, it increased by a smaller fraction than the good Dr. Enos had expected. So it turns out that fingers do not behave like a normal solid. The skin of the fingers was behaving more like rubber, where the friction is actually proportional to the amount of contact between the two surfaces. That is, the more skin in contact with the surface, the greater the friction. Enos varied the area of each finger pad that came into contact with the surface by dragging narrow and wide strips of acrylic along the finger pads. He found that the friction did increase as more of the fingerprint came into contact with the surface, so the skin was behaving just like rubber. So what's the conclusion? It is, ta-da, fingerprints definitely do not improve a grip's friction because they reduce our skin's contact with objects in our grasp and even seem to loosen our grip in some circumstances. So what the heck do fingerprints do then? Is there any advantage to having them if they don't improve grip? Enos has suggested a couple of alternatives that may still make fingerprints important. It may be that fingerprints are more designed to help grip rough surfaces, like tree bark, not smooth surfaces. Certainly our ancient ancestors would have spent a great deal doing exactly that. Another alternative he suggests is that fingerprints are there to help drain trapped water from our finger pads and improve surface contact under wet conditions. Other researchers have suggested that the ridges have nothing to do with grip at all and are simply there to increase our finger pads' touch sensitivity. Whatever our fingerprints are for, it seems that the idea that they provide friction for grip has gone the way of the dodo. Our last story of the evening is another update on those amazing dolphins. Every time that you think that you've mined out their mind-blowing capacities, something new comes up. This story is from the July issue of the Journal of Experimental Biology. Dr. Lawrence Howell and Paul Weber from Duke University teamed up with Mark Murray from the U.S. Naval Academy and Frank Fish from Westchester University. They got together to find out exactly how it is that dolphins are able to move so fast and easily in the water. Hydrodynamically, what gives them that aquatic agility that we gawk at in the wild or at sea world? The research group made scaled models of flippers for a whole series of dolphin species using computer tomography scanning of their fins. They examined seven different species ranging from the slow Amazon River dolphin to the super-fast striped dolphin. And what did they find? Well, comparing the lift and drag coefficients for each flipper at different inclination angles, 
they found that the flippers behaved just like modern engineered aerofoils. In short, the fluid flows around the flippers, and the swept-back flippers generate lift, like modern delta-wing aircraft. The best-known example of delta-wing planes are the stealth fighter bombers that are admired by so many for their 22nd century designs. There's a direct correlation between the speed of the dolphin species and the quality-slash-efficiency of their aerofoil flippers. For example, the fast bottlenose dolphin's triangular flippers are the most efficient, while the slower harbor porpoise and the Atlantic white-sided dolphin's fins are the least efficient. The authors speculate how evolution could have come up with that design independently, but they never really get anywhere with it. They suggest that the best way to understand how evolution could have reached this pinnacle of aquatic and hydrodynamic engineering is to find out more about the link between the flippers' performances and the environment that the cetaceans negotiate on a daily basis. In essence, this would tell us the conditions that dolphins evolved in that had the most immediate effects on their developmental selection. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for listening for the last year. As always, take care, and I hope I have inspired some of you. Until next time, this is Jim Campanella. Jim's now getting these science articles on time, so I'm thinking now he's got more time, spare time. So, Jim, I'm going to be sending you some narrations over soon. Very soon, sir. Thank you so much. Next up is... Main Fiction by Neil Asher, British science fiction writer. He began writing science fiction and fantasy in high school, but he didn't turn seriously to write until he was 25. He published his first story in 1989. His novel, Gridlinked, was published in 2001. The first in a series of novels made up of Gridlinked, The Line of Polity, Brassman, Polity Agent, and The Line War. Neil Asher's Polity Universe, you know, it does encompass all kinds of the classic science fiction tropes, including you know world ruling, artificial intelligence, androids, hive minds, aliens, time travel, the lot. And it's actually known as like you know, the subgenre is probably known as post cyberpunk. It is narrated by Peter Seaton Clark. Now we had Mrs. Seaton Clark on a few months ago with doing a narration. Peter is a presenter, writer, producer and director working throughout Europe and notably for UK's first independent TV station. He was also the main script writer for most of the station's commercials and wrote voiceover scripts for over 20 half-hour shows, not to mention being the voice for the Daily Weather Report. From the Met Office, no doubt. My God! Since leaving England, Peter has worked as voiceover artist in both Spain and Germany and has worked extensively in the fields of new media and corporate video. He is, together with his good wife, running a business which sources and provides native-speaking voice talents to TV and radio productions in central Germany. And like I say, when I say this is a fine narration, this is a fine narration. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present Adaptogenic by Neil Asher. Another murderlouse made its scuttling charge. Its trilobite body holding level as a pointer on me as its multitude of legs found purchase on the weed-slippery rocks. I watched the creature, with a crawling sensation in my guts as it reached the perimeter. There was always the horrible suspicion that this time one might make it, that this time I'd end up as a paralysed egg-carrier or diced by those grinding mandibles. 
But no, with admirable and assuring efficiency, the Tenkin strobed from its tripod, and the louse became a messy explosion of legs, carapace and pink icor. This is, of course, adding to my problems. Every louse the autogun splatters means more food to attract more lice. They are coming with greater frequency now. Soon I'll have to move the crate to a cleaner area, try to find somewhere to hide it, where it won't be swept away. There's enough power left in the gun's batteries for it to follow on its impellers. A cleaner area. In a day or so, all areas on this side of the planet will be swept clean. I face choices. The lice, drowning, or ceasing to be human. Why the hell am I worrying about the crate? I really wish I'd missed that auction. Good morning, Mr. Chell, said the two and a half metre tall, two hundred kilo monster who worked as security guard for Darkander. I gave Jane a look of long suffering and stood still while I was scanned for comlinks, or any of the other equipment Darkander considered an unfair advantage. You are clean, Mr. Chell. My chip card was next, and the monster took it from me between a finger and thumb like the grab on a cometary mining ship. After a moment he returned it. Your credit is good, Mr. Cho. After she too had been checked out, Jane joined me. I smiled mild approval at her call. Is it always like that? she asked, tucking her card into one of the many pockets of her coverall. Always. No extra information access. No comlinks and no AIs. Darkander is very strict about it. Isn't that a bit discriminating? Some free AIs once took him to court on those grounds. They lost out on a protection of antiquities law about two centuries old. He then pointed out to them that should they bring another action and win, he would be forced to close down. They left him alone. Anyway, what do you think? Darkanders is an anachronism. It is a huge scan-shielded warehouse where all manner of items are stacked haphazardly and sold by lot. There is no computer bidding. No microsecond business transactions. Starting from lot one, everything comes under Darkanders wooden hammer. It is a place for human experts, with a relish for competition an eye for bargains and deals, and a dislike of paying taxes. People like Jason Chell. Me. Now I'm not going to point anything out to you as I'm often watched. Anything that takes your interest, mark on the list, then come back to me when you've finished. I'll tell you how high to go. Jane smiled, then swayed off amongst the chaos of goods. As I watched her go, I felt a degree of discomfort. I'd promised her this visit some time ago, when I'd been drunk, and had since tried very hard to get out of it. Well, now she was here. Hopefully she wouldn't cause too much harm. I slowly followed her in, and allowed my gaze to wander casually to the objects I was after. 
there was a box of what looked like pre-runcible tiles, probably from the belly of a shuttle, a fake-work sculpture of Orboni skulls, something that looked like the shell of a mollusk. I hadn't a clue what it was, but was prepared to risk a few credits on it. And finally, there was the Gollum 6 android, which after my cursory inspection the day before, I felt sure had the mind of a three or four. This last item was the one I really wanted. Made before the 23rd revision of the Turing test, these Gollum were much in demand. Of course, now the auction was starting, I did not look too closely at it. I instead showed a great deal of interest in some chain-glass blades which were quite obviously faked to look like Tenkians. The bidding started off with the usual lack of alacrity as Jane rejoined me. Let me see. I took the note screen from her and studied at the items she had marked. To my annoyance, I noticed she had marked the tiles. I think we'll have a cup of coffee. These, I tapped the stylus against the lot number of the tiles, won't be up for a while. And they are the first on your... list. I had decided to be generous. We sat sipping our way through a cup of coffee each as the auction progressed. At the lot before the tiles we sauntered out, and as soon as this was sold we moved into Darkhander's view. The short, bald-headed man, who was reputed to be a multi-billionaire, flicked a glance in my direction, tried to start the bidding at five hundred. I caught hold of Jane's arm before she could raise it. The figure Darkander suggested dropped in fifties until it was fifty then started to rise again in twenty-fives. Jane began to bid, and as she did so I looked to see who she was bidding against. When the figure reached four-twenty-five, I nudged her. Drop it! Why? You're out of your league here, and that's about all they're worth. The bidding continued to the figure of five-seventy-five. See the fat little guy over there? I directed Jane's attention to that individual. He's the agent for the Ganymede Runcible AI. It probably wants to give its containment sphere that old world look. The mollusk shell was next, but no one made a bid. It went into the next lot, which appeared to be a collection of all sorts of junk. But I'd seen a really old digital watch lying in there, and had not expected a chance at it. I swore to myself for not going for the shell straight away, but I just wasn't paying attention. On this next lot, the bidding was tried at fifty, then dropped to ten. No one went for it, so I gave Darkander the nod. Going once, he told me. Going twice. I couldn't believe it. I saw the runcible agent glance at me suspiciously and begin to raise his hand. He was too late for the hammer went down. Sold to Mr. Chell. I managed to keep a straight face. Good? Jane asked. Yes, very good. I think. The Thrakework sculpture went to the woman in black. She'd always had a taste for the macabre. I bid against her a couple of times, but when I saw that wild look come into her eyes, I gave up. I knew her of old. 
There was half an hour before the golem was to come up for auction. So with a nod to the lady, she didn't see. She was fumbling with her death-head charm, staring at the sculpture with horrible avidity. I went to authorise the credit transfer for my buy, and leaving Jane to her own devices, took the boxes out to my Ford Gravcar. The mollusk shell was interesting. I noted that the box it came in had the same shipment marks, stamps and tape as the packing strewn about the golem. This told me no more than they'd come from the same world. I wanted some hint as to the value, and did not relish the prospect of initiating a computer search to identify this shell. Life in its unbelievable abundance in the fifth of the galaxy thus far explored had often used this sensible method of self-preservation. There were probably more types of shell than excuses for taxation. I put the shell aside and opened the other box. Most of the contents of this box I could justify the price paid with resale through my shop, but no more. The digital watch was a dog. The case and the strap, which I thought to be ceramel greyed with age, turned out to be one of the later matte ceramels. There was nothing inside the case. I swore, and was about to sling the box to the front of the van compartment when something caught my eye. It was a bracelet set with manufactured diamonds, and therefore of little value. It was cheap costume jewellery, yet something gave me pause, something wrong with it. I glanced back into the auction room, and saw that it would soon be the golem's turn. I'd have to find out later. In a rather distracted mood I returned, after another scanning to Jane's side in the auction room, and bid two hundred over the odds for the golem. Only as Jane and I were leaving did I notice the desperate gaze of the late arrival. Chaplin Grable is the kind of man you learn to avoid at Darkhanders. The kind of man who'll sidle up beside you and start asking the kind of questions you really don't want to answer if you're after anything in particular. Then he'll give you his jaundiced opinion on various objects in the warehouse and sidle away. After he's gone, you feel the immediate urge to check your pockets, your credit rating, and then go home for a shower. That day he stuck to me like a piece of dog shit on an instep. Look! All I want is a copy. Downloaded copy. It's easy money. I glanced towards Jane, who was then involved in bidding for an arty-looking mobile, made from genuine fossil-fuel-based plastic, if the label was to be believed. I felt a certain relief that she was not at my side then. How much? Four hundred. That's fair. I'll use all my own stuff. It's easy. I was curious. A thousand. Oh, come on, for that piece of junk. Only want it for the Historical Society. Six hundred. Funny. I thought I said a thousand. Seven fifty. That's it. Easy. Final offer. No more. Capiche? Caput? Not interested. Of course I was. Very interested. But if there was good money to be made here, I intended to make it, not to pass it on to this slime bag. Okay, okay, a thousand. Done. A thousand. Go away, I told him.
Then I saw something in his expression I didn't like at all. Something incongruous. I turned away and headed for my grav car, with the android walking along behind me. A thousand is a lot, it said. It is. I inspected it contemplatively. But for the loss of the synth flesh covering of one side of its face, and one arm, it might well have been human. Many of its kind had since been accepted as such. It was just an unfair quirk of the law that defined this one as a machine, and later models as sentient creatures. What's your name? I asked it. Paul. G6. B33. Why do you think he's interested in your memory, Paul? I do not know. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I have no long-term memory other than CyberCorp contract and base program. Grable had obviously loused. There was nothing of value in this android's mind. I should have sold him a copy. Too late now. Get in the back of the car, Paul. My android obeyed me. The Tenkian autogun followed with its impeller humming like an AC transformer, and its turret revolving with martinet vigilance. A couple of lice came out from the rocks behind, but it did not fire for they did not come into the shifting perimeter. They stayed to feed on the remains of their fellows, their mandibles clacking with relish. I had a hell of a time with the crate. I slipped once and grazed my knee, then sat on a wet rock swearing with water soaking into the bum of my trousers. I could open the crate and maybe its contents would follow me as obediently as Paul G6B33, if its power pack wasn't down. Finally, 
I abandoned it in a suitable crevice weighed down with crusted rocks. Then I moved on. The world tide is coming with the rise of Scylla's binary companion, and I have to prepare myself. I don't like to think about how. After taking the precaution of dropping Jane off at her residence, I didn't want her with me where I was going next. I took Paul straight to a prospective buyer. There was the usual jam-up at the atmosphere lock, and it took two hours before we were out of the city dome and cruising into the outlands. Paul had remained silent until we were speeding towards a distinctly curved horizon, over the landscape of yellow ice cliffs and weirdly phosphorescent mists. What place is this? he asked with idiot precision. I pointed out of the screen. I suppose I could give you a total of twelve guesses, but no, you only get three. He gazed out of the screen at the massive loom of Jupiter filling half the sky, its red eye storm gazing down at us speculatively. We are on one of Jupiter's moons, he said. I decided he definitely had the mind of a three, since a five never felt the need to state the obvious. But as far as antique value went, a five was half the value of a three. Yes, but can you figure which moon? There was a long pause, then the statement, Ganymede. If he'd got it wrong, I would have been most surprised. Threes are not capable of guessing. If they do not have enough data to come to a conclusion, they say so. Correct, I told him superfluously, and slowly began to bring the grav car down towards an expensive residence set in the face of a sulphur-crusted cliff. The lock of a garage opened for us, and we were soon climbing out of the car to be greeted by the goddess. Why do I call Hanara the goddess? Because that is precisely what she looks like. Aphrodite, Diana, some supernal woman. She's nearly two metres tall and has the kind of build that would leave a man with a hollow feeling in the region of his groin. She has long, luxuriant hair and a face to leave sculptures and painters feeling inadequate. Jason, so glad to see you. And who is this? Her voice set bits of me vibrating I did not know existed. She was fantastic. The AI that designed her deserved some kind of award, if it hadn't already got one. She was a golem twenty-three, I think. Human beings are never that close to perfection, or apotheosis. This is Paul, G6B33, I said, making the introductions. Paul? This is Hanara Indomiel who I hope will soon be your new owner. Paul greeted her politely, and she led us into her home. In a few minutes I was sunk in a sofa which was ridiculously luxurious, with a large scotch in my hand. Hanara and I had an agreement that went back for ten years. She paid me a retainer so I would buy up any golem that came up for auction at Darkhanders, and offer it to her on a percentage basis. She was a free golem, and very, very rich. The work of her endless life now was to make other golem free. She bought them, 
upgraded them, and put them through the revised Turing test. Then she set them free. There was a great deal of interest in them, I told her. I had to pay two hundred more than expected. The credit transfer was made and I relaxed. One strange thing. Chaplin Grable offered me a thousand for a download copy of Paul's memory. Yet Paul only has his short-term memory and his base Cybercorp contract and programming. Interesting, said Hanara, with a noblesse oblige nod. Then she turned her attention to Paul. Who owned you prior to Jason here? I was attached to the Planetary Survey Corps in 2433, was his reply, and I knew that was all she'd get. Assignment was in the contract memory. His skills and personality were in his base memory. I didn't think there was much to be learned, so after a while I took my leave. Back at my apartment, I spread my remaining purchases out on a repro 20th century glass-top coffee table. No one can afford the real thing. And I inspected each of the items minutely. Eventually, reluctantly, I picked up the bracelet and studied it. The metal it was made from, like the watch, was ceramic. There were eight lozenge diamonds placed evenly around it, one for each colour of the rainbow, plus one clear one. What made me suspicious about the object was the centimetre thickness of the ceramic. It was perhaps the thickness needed for a chain used to tow asteroids, but hardly required for costume jewellery. I popped it open and inspected the clasp and hinges. What I found there increased my suspicion, and stirred up a little of the excitement I always thought dead until each time it reappeared. Where the bracelet opened, there were pins on one side and sockets on the other. Where it hinged, there were flexible mini-conduits. The pins, I realised on seeing their reddish luster, were made of carbon-60 doped ceramic, a very hard room-temperature superconductor. What I was holding certainly wasn't cheap costume jewellery. What it was, I hadn't a clue. It was about then that the phone let me know someone wanted to speak with me. Yes, who is it? Ah! The hologram of Chaplin Grable's most unbecoming features flickered into life before me. Hanara Indomiel has it. Go bother her. I'm authorised to offer you two thousand for... What? Hanara Indomiel. I waved my hand in the general direction of the eye and the face flickered out of existence. I didn't like the man. The phone called for my attention again. Look, you piece of... Hanara appeared before me. Her legs chopped off at the knees by the coffee table. Sorry, I thought you might be Grable. She looked at me quizzically and I explained the previous call to her. She smiled. I asked her what she wanted. Paul has his basic personality, his cybercore programming, and a few giga of short-term memory. His long-term memory has actually been removed. I told you that, I said, confused. No, you misunderstand me. Up until the Golem 15, 
compartmentalization was used, not whole mind programming. The LTM unit has been physically removed, probably about the same time as the missing synth flesh and skin. Oh, I said brilliantly. I would, of course, like you to acquire this LTM should it become available. I'll see what I can do, I told her. Of course, she was far too polite to bring my integrity into doubt. As she flickered out of existence, I felt decidedly uncomfortable. I studied at the bracelet. Could this be it? Seemed unlikely, but I decided to check. My hand scanner revealed a complexity it could not analyse. I used my system scanner and paid for time on one of the runcible submines. It took a few minutes, but I soon received the analysis along with the bill. The bracelet went under the name of a Four Seasons Changer. It was a 27th century adaptogen laboratory. Not particularly old, but quite valuable, if you can find the right buyer. And the right buyer was almost always an adapted human to beyond the fifth generation. I wondered, as always, with the kind of morbid fascination that comes with the discovery of such an artefact, if it still worked. I was not to know then that one day the answer to that question was something on which my survival might depend. Three Solston days later, I had expert advice on the changer, and the advice was, Use this at considerable risk. The construction is far too complex and old for any kind of study that would not involve deconstruction. And why the hell do you want to know? I was, of course, hoping for documented proof of working order as this would double the value of the bracelet. There are experts, and there are experts. On the same day as I received this piece of negative equity, I picked up the mollusk shell and listened for the sound of the sea. I hadn't identified the shell yet. There was no sound, and feeling hard put upon, I shook it in irritation, as one would shake any other piece of malfunctioning hardware. A cuboid crystal with silver circuitry etched in three faces like strange glyphs fell out and cracked the top of my coffee table. Okay, it wasn't that valuable, but I was attached to it, which was probably why I was pissed off enough to download a copy of what turned out to be Paul's LTM, to sell to Grable before passing in the original on to Hanara. As was to be my luck at that time, I discovered I could not find Grable anywhere. I ended up studying the memory myself, determined to make a decent profit somehow that week. It took me a couple of days to run through the last mission. Much of my time was spent fast-forwarding by hand or by computer instruction, i.e. stop when something interesting occurs. It seemed to me that these golems spent most of their time standing about waiting to be given orders. The tale I eventually managed to piece together was one of incompetence and failure. The PSC had tried to establish a base on a planet called Scylla, before something called the World Tide occurred. This was to be done by a mixed crew of hired labourers and androids. The whole thing was severely disorganised. The androids weren't complex enough and the workers not clever enough to sort out the discrepancy. There were disputes about pay, and an attempt, considering the time limit on the project, at what can only be described as extortion. I saw the base half-finished, and a belated attempt at evacuation. Some of the humans got away, 
Others boxed the androids and attempted to seal the base against the world tide. Paul was not boxed because he was almost as useful as the humans. He was a very new design. The rest was like some Atlantean disaster. Explosions, water, sparks, floating bodies. When Paul's memory grayed into auto-shutdown, after a long period of time recording the marine life feeding, I realised what Grable had been after. The androids. They were Gollum 2s, the first workable androids to be sold by Cybercorp. There had only been one Gollum 1, and if still there, they were worth disgustingly huge amounts of money. I wondered then where he got his information from, and why Paul's LTM had ended up in that shell. But even as I wondered, I packed the equipment I would need, and sought the required permissions for its transportation. By the next Solston day, I'd booked myself for transmission to Silla's Runcible. For while running through Paul's memory, I'd seen a map, and a map reference. I knew where the base was. The crate is hidden. The world tide is coming, and there are only two things that stand between me and death. My Tankian autogun keeps the lice away, but there is no sensible way it can keep me from drowning. There is another way, though. Even as I record this, I pull up my sleeve and look at the bracelet clasped around my wrist. The jewels seem to have taken on a sinister glitter. Jane was not happy about my sudden business trip, but I managed to bring her around as I normally do. After spending one pleasant night with her, I got up early and made my way to the transmission station. The runcible transmission. The longest and most unbelievable part of any interstellar journey took no time at all. I don't even try to pretend to know anything about the technology that can shove me through an underspace non-distance and drag me out a hundred or more light years away, and in that I am more honest than most. Skyden technology. Brought about by the linking of a human mind and AI. It's impossible to understand unless you are both a genius, like Skyden himself, and plugged in. In my life I've been neither, and I'm unlikely to be. One moment I was there, standing in the containment sphere, as before the altar to Minotaur. Silver bull's horns on a daze of black glass. Horns holding the shimmering disc of the cusp. Then one step after, I'm 123 light years away on the other side of another cusp in an identical sphere. Standardization across the galaxy. As awesome as it is depressing. Beyond the standard 1G gravity in the containment sphere, the gravity was rather less but being a fairly well-seasoned traveller, I soon adjusted. A wide concourse led from the row of containment spheres to a huge embarkation lounge, this being because I had arrived on the moonlit Kala, the closest companion to Scylla, which was too unstable for sighting a runcible. At the opposite end of the lounge, I could see a delta-wing shuttle waiting to heave itself into a violet sky, and was surprised to see how few people there were waiting for the flight. I made my way to an information console, and called up one of the Runcible submines. Name? Jason Chell. What information do you require, Jason Chell? 
There are certain packages under my code and I wish to pick them. The packages have arrived at Cargo Runcible 4. There are AG drays available at all Cargo Runcibles. I regarded the console with a degree of suspicion. It had been very quick for a submind. Perhaps it was Carla, AI, taking an interest itself. The contents of one of my packages were somewhat unusual. Uh, could you also tell me when the next shuttle is leaving for Scylla? There will not be another shuttle to Scylla for two hundred Solston days. What? There will not be another shuttle. I, I heard what you said. Why will there not be another shuttle to Scylla for two hundred days? Because it is summer. I beg your pardon? There came a sound very like a sigh from the console, as if it were tired of repeating this information to people who hadn't checked. Scylla is closed to all traffic for a period of 273 Solston days during its summer season. All ground bases are sealed. This is due to the accelerated activity of dangerous life forms at this time of year. I walked away from the console feeling like a complete idiot. Some of the equipment I had in my luggage was brought along to deal with the life forms I'd seen in Paul's memory. A precaution which had cost me a fair lump of credit for transportation under seal. Now I discover that in my eagerness, I'd made a complete bollocks. I'd have to go back to Ganymede and wait three quarters of a year before I could come back. In a daze, I headed for one of the bars at the edge of the lounge with the vague idea of getting plastered. I was into my third scotch when a vaguely familiar figure slipped into the seat on the other side of my table. It took me a moment to recognise him. Even then I wasn't quite sure. He looked too clean, too suave. Not the man I'd known. What a surprise to meet you here, said Chaplain Grable, and he grinned as amiably as a shark. I sat upright and looked at him in surprise. His smile made a small transition into a sneer as he took out a chain-glass blade and began cleaning his nails. They didn't need cleaning. My contact tells me there was a small foul-up. He didn't get time to put the LTM back, so he concealed it in the hammerwelk shell. He glanced up from cleaning his nails, and I wondered why I had always considered him to be a faintly ridiculous, irritating, but harmless fool. Seems a shell went into the next lot, which was then purchased by a Mr. Chell. That wouldn't be you, would it? He slid around the table into the seat next to me, his arm along the back of my chair, and the chain-glass knife held between his fingertips, with its point pressing against his leg. I considered hitting down on the knife and driving it into his leg, but decided that was a fool's move. I needed to know how much he knew, how much he had planned, I put on my best buying and selling face. Grable, I doubt very much you could get away with using that here, so put it away. Let's talk a little business. He watched me coldly, and the knife disappeared with practiced neatness into a wrist sheath. I'd have to watch him. Correct on the first point, a little awry on the second. Your speech is somewhat altered, Mr. Grable. It suits the situation, he said with a nasty smile. I needed to get a step ahead of him. I decided to take a little gamble. Of course, it is a shame you don't know the location. Didn't your contact have time? It was a hit. Grable turned a sickly white, then came back with, 
but I'll have 273 days in which to scan this planet and find the base. This was a hit as well. An arrangement, perhaps, I suggested. Yes, seems the most sensible course. I'd never understood the expression eyes like gimlets until that moment. Grable had shed his normal unpleasant exterior, and what was revealed underneath wasn't much better. About an hour ago I reached this location. It it will do. There's a hollow in the surface with a sheltering overhang on the eastern side. Here I'll be protected from the first destructive surge of the flood. All that remains is for me to survive when this area is under 40 metres of sea. When I arrived here I sat on a fairly dry rock and fingered the bracelet. Nearby the autogun settled down on its tripod legs. An improbable steel mosquito. After a moment I pushed my fingernail under the edge of the green diamond. With a faint hum the diamond hinged out to reveal a polished cavity. I knew what to do next, but was again reluctant. I looked across at a nearby scorched carcass of a murder louse, and then moved over to it. It smelt of boiled lobster and was steaming slightly. Using a piece of shell, I scooped up some ichor and dribbled it into the hollow in the bracelet. The diamond has now clicked back into place. I sit upon my rock and wait. Grable's contact on Carla was a man who ran an exclusive mini-shuttle service to Scylla. It wasn't illegal, just a little grey. The console had informed me that the planet was closed to all traffic at this time of its year, which didn't mean it was against any law to go there. All the individual protection laws had been thrown out centuries ago. If a person wanted to risk his own life, that was his privilege, just so long as no other unconsenting individuals were put at risk. The powers that be looked upon it as evolution in action, an imminently sensible view, in my opinion. His name was Warak Singh, and he had the appearance of someone out of a flat-screen pirate film. A kind of new millennium Errol Flynn. Deliberately so, I think. His companion was one of the later Gollum, and was perhaps the reason Singh's launch equipment and shuttle were in such good order. But then, with the money he charged, there should have been no reason for the situation to have been otherwise. We agreed on a percentage basis, said Grable. He showed no anger, and could have been discussing something completely irrelevant by the tone of his voice. It had been some time since Singh had told us he wanted a straight credit payment for transportation. I watched, while Singh grinned rakishly. Then I turned to help the golem with the loading of our supplies and equipment. You want to go down there to find something in the summer, friend Grable? Then you pay me first. Which didn't say much for his confidence in our chances. I wondered just how bad it could get down there. Perhaps I should have left Grable to it and come back in the winter. Too late now. We had an agreement! said Grable, his tone not so easy now. We had an agreement in the winter, and you're in no position to argue, Grable. I took no part in the exchange. All I knew was that if I was Singh, I would be watching my back from then on. Singh's craft was not the usual delta wing, but a glide-effect re-entry shuttle, 
covered with ceramic outer skin. As I had noted on first seeing it, it was beautifully maintained, but I still felt queasy when looking at it. It was old. The AG units were a new addition, about a century back, as were the bolt-on fusion boosters. I knew. We were going to be in for a rough ride. Once everything was loaded and we had clearance from the runcible AI, we boarded and the craft was sealed. Grable and I had the only seats available. The rest of the row had been folded down into the floor to make room for our baggage. Singh took a seat in the pilot's chair while the golem checked something at the back of the shuttle. I stared through the front screen and saw huge bay doors sliding aside. Beyond lay the tight curve of a not-too-distant horizon. The moonlit Kala was only a few tens of kilometres across. Please strap yourselves in. I glanced up at the golem, then did as instructed. I was too used to travelling on shuttles with shock fields in the passenger areas. Rabel seemed to have some trouble with their straps. Let me help you, said the golem. It reached down and buckled his straps for him. We would not want you to get hurt, it said in the flattest of voices. I think Grable got the message. The hum of the AG units made my teeth ache, but the lift was smooth and the shuttle slid out of the bay doors without a perceptible waver. I glanced across at Grable and noted with satisfaction that he had gone white. I had thought I was the soft one. Soon we were gliding rapidly above a landscape of jagged rocks, with the glitter of runcible installations between like spilt mercury. Then there was a roar as the old shuttle motors flung us out of Carla's well. The acceleration shoved me back into my seat, and I prepared myself for more. We weren't far enough from the moonlight for the fusion motors to be ignited. When we were far enough, I certainly knew it. The world grew a little dimmer around the edges. It comes as a surprise when you find out how much internal AG shields you from reality on the commercial passenger shuttles. The journey took us two Solston days, and I'll say no more about it than that it was strained. Entry into Scylla's atmosphere was frightening, but it came as a relief. There are fifth-generation adapted people who can survive in vacuum. They live in the outlink stations which travel on the edge of human expansion into the galaxy. Their adaptations are somewhat different from the kind the bracelet would deliver. It used localised genetic material, whether DNA-based or not. It read the code, picked the high-level survival characteristics, transposed them. I once saw a Sundancer human at Darkhanders, his skin silver as mercury. It has never been made clear whether they are adapted humans or sun dancers with human shape. Everyone has seen high G adapted humans. In all cases, it was done with nanotech and biointegration. I'm about to join the ranks. A sharp pain in my wrist as my blood follows a new path, round the bracelet where it is used as a source of raw materials, and from where it comes out much changed. They are in. The nanobots and nanofactories, reforming legions of the invisible. I feel dizzy. Now my heart is thundering at double speed. The Tenkian. Better. Better. Ah, 
better. I altered its programming. Widened its recognition parameters. Don't want to be shot by my own weaponry. Now I'll lie down on the sandy mud and stare at the sky. This is why I spend so much time at Darkhanders, and why I have such a love for antiquities. Technology, like sorcery, scares the shit out of me. Losing it. Blacking. It was two hours until dawn, and the sky was the colour of old blood, and had clouds across it as ambiguous as Rorschach blots. We stepped down the ramp onto a rocky ground that had been incinerated in a half-kilometre radius from where we stood. According to Singh, this was what was called taking adequate precautions. How far do you have to travel from here? he asked Grable. You don't have to know that. All you have to know is that we'll be back here in two days, Solston. Grable took precautions as well, but then he had no choice. That was the only information I had given him. He did not know the direction in which we would be going just yet. I took my own precautions. I'll see you then. The ramp retracted with swift finality, and the shuttle rose with an eerie lack of sound on its AG. A few minutes later we saw the accelerating flare of its engines. The sound reached us as we hurriedly unpacked our equipment. Out of the corner of my eye I saw Grable quickly get hold of some kind of handgun and glance at me speculatively. By then I had a control box in my hand and was stepping back from my luggage. This should keep us secure, I said, and flicked a nail against a touch plate. The Tenkian autogun rose out of the box like some terrible chrome insect. Red and green lights flickered on its various displays and its barrel glimmered in the starlight. Soon it was hovering above the box, with its turret revolving, pausing, considering. I have it programmed for a twenty-metre circle from me, I said. I watched as Grable carefully holstered his gun. He didn't know what else I had it programmed for. The sun was a spherical emerald when it breached the horizon and gave even the ash around us the appearance of life. Scylla's binary companion was days away yet, on the other side of the planet, where it had dragged the planetary sea. As the sun cleared the horizon, the tint became less garish, but by then the life of Scylla was coming to meet us. The first murderlouse approached with the dainty and deadly purpose of a spider. The autogun killed it at an invisible line. If one of those gets through, it's a toss-up between whether you'll get eaten or injected full of eggs, Grable told me after he had named the creature. I'd have thought you more prepared, I said. He smiled bleakly and pulled on gloves that keyed in at the wrist to the body armour he was wearing under his normal clothing. I felt a little foolish. I've an autogun as well, but not as good as that Denkian. It killed nine more lives before we had the portable grav car assembled, and the rest of our equipment loaded upon it. Only when we were twenty metres above the ground with the autogun perched at the back of the craft did we relax, though not for long. The Tenkian's purpose then was one of dealing with creatures like a cross between a moth and a crab which seemed to want to come and visit. "'Okay, which way?' Grable asked. I took out my palm computer and called up my sat-link, direction finder and map. 
After a moment I read off the coordinates to him. There was a pause. I expected him to make his move then, but it wasn't to be. He punched the coordinates into the autopilot and off we went, just as if we were partners. I thought it likely he wanted to be sure I was telling the truth. The trip took five hours. Once we passed over the edge of the incinerated area, we got a look at what the surface of Scylla was really like. I realised then why this planet had first been named Shore. Like probably a hundred other planets, how many Edens, New Earths and Utopias would there be if the naming of planets had been left to humans? The surface was a tideland. The plant life was seaweeds, kelps and racks, and huge rotting masses of something like sargassum. There were rocky areas, muddy areas, sandy areas, and pools dotted across the shorescape like silver coins. Through a set of image intensifiers I observed a multitude of different kinds of mollusks. There were plenty of arthropods as well, the murder lice being the most prevalent. Perhaps there were other dominant kinds, but I didn't like to keep the intensifiers to my eyes for too long, as it meant my eyes weren't on Grable. As we drew close to our destination we began to see centuries-old wreckage. I passed the intensifiers to Grable and pointed at the blurred squares and lines in the mudflats below us. Looks like the remains of an earlier attempt, I said. He glanced over, but didn't accept the intensifiers. Where shall I put us down? I pointed to where a rock field rose up out of the mudflats. The entrance to the base was in such an area, if this place had not changed too much since Paul had been here. As Grable brought the craft down between two huge boulders, he gazed out at the mudflats dubiously. It's an underground installation, he asked. Yes, and before you ask, I brought a pump. A wide-field metals resonator found us the entrance in a matter of minutes. A shot from Grable's handgun turned the door into a molten ruin. After that, we had to leave my pump labouring away for hours to get rid of the water and liquid mud. Sitting in the AGC, we ate a meal of recon steak, croquette potatoes and courgettes, and watched the Tenkians splattering murder lice with metronomic regularity. Off to one side the roar of the outlet hose was like the warming up of a shuttle engine. It was a good pump, made of nano-built ceramics and powered by a couple of mini-piles. After we had eaten, we checked on the pump and found that a couple of rooms were now accessible and that the inlet hose had attached itself to a wall like a leech. I turned the pump off, moved the hose down into an underwater stairwell and turned it on again. The exposed rooms contained little of value or interest, other than orgiastic clumps of those mollusks called hammerwelks, one shell of which had got me into all this. The floor was half a metre deep in reddish slimy mud. Two hours passed, and the outlet hose of the pump shifted, as one of its ground staples came out and created a geyser over the mudflats. For a while we had a blue shifted rainbow, until I went out and drove another staple into the rock. In another hour the next floor was revealed, and things became a lot more interesting. I hadn't expected to find human remains, and was most surprised when I did. The man, or woman, had climbed into an armoured diving suit and died there, what I found was a skeleton inside a thick crust of grey corrosion. 
I only knew the skeleton was there because the salts that had corroded the armour had kept the faceplate clear, inside and out. The Golem twos might be the same. They didn't make very good ceramel, then, said Grable. They crated them. There's a good chance the crates were some kind of vacuum-sealed plastic. Let's just hope we're lucky, I told him. We found three crates, and our scans showed us the contents were intact. I felt a surge of joy, excitement and justification. Grable showed unexpected friendliness. We attached AG units and loaded two of the crates with efficient cooperation. Grable was all smiles. You get that last one and I'll detach the pump, he suggested. Grinning, I raised my hand and entered the base. Only when I reached the crate, turned on the AG unit and found it didn't work, did the nasty, distrustful part of my mind come out from under its stone and say, You dumb fuck. I ran outside in time to see the grav car ten metres up in the air and rising. Its units were struggling and I noticed that a cluster of hammer whelks was clinging to the underside. Grable, you bastard! The world tide should be along in a few days. Enjoy your swim. For a moment I considered programming the Tenkian to go after him, but it was still spattering murder lice. I shuddered to think what would happen to me without its protection. I'm using the keypad now to input this. I have no choice. I came out of the blackness with a leaden heaviness in my lungs and a strange numbness to my skin. I staggered to my feet and felt the skin of my arm. It's no longer skin. It is an exoskeleton. I reached up to my face with hands like complex pincers and screamed at what I found there. My face has deformed horrifically. I looked down and saw my teeth lying in the mud. I have no need of them now. I managed to click my mandibles a few times before I blacked out again. I thought that perhaps my mind was becoming as irrelevant as my teeth. When I woke next, I was feeding on the remains of the murder louse I was stealing my shape from, and I felt no inclination to stop. That wasn't what got to me. What got to me was that I wasn't breathing. Not at all. The nightmare lasted perhaps ten hours before either I began to accept or something in the structure of my brain was altered or excised. I was frighteningly hungry, and the lice beyond the perimeter of the autogun looked good. I turned the gun off and waited. In moments the lice were on me, mandibles grating on my shell and ovipositors thumping against my torso like bayonets. I tore them apart like handfuls of weed, then turned the autogun back on while I fed, cracking open legs and carapaces with my mandibles, and sure beat the hell out of the nutcrackers they provide in restaurants. A minute ago, the autogun showed a red light, and I shut it down. No more lice came, though. The steady vibration is shaking the air, and the ground under my feet is jerking spastically. The binary is rising. Another sun. A small blue sun. The horizon it breaches is a line of white and silver. The world tide. At the first signs I folded the autogun 
and copying the lice I could see, I found a crevice and jammed myself in it. Here I am. The initial wave I estimate to be about twenty meters high, a mountain of water swamping the world. Behind it the sea is mounded up like a leashed monster. The sight is terrifying. Exhilarating. Magnificent. Now I must hold on. The tide has passed. How many days? I don't know. All I know is that there was a time when I watched the surface get closer. Then a time when I stood up and swatted away a murder louse like an irritating fly before sliding the nictitating membranes from my eyes. I thought Grable would be gone, as would my lift off-planet. Even so, when the water was round my feet, I reached into the remains of my jacket, extracted my palm computer, called up a map to locate the pickup point and headed that way. In the first moments of the tide, I had nearly been dislodged from my crevice. Then the surges passed, and in the company of murder lice I swam in the sea, and I breathed. I did not have gills, but somehow my lungs had been altered to extract oxygen from water. The lice left me alone as they fed on the masses of flotsam caught in the flood. I was almost enjoying myself when the first dark shape blotted out the blue and green light. They were a kind of flatfish, but the size of great whites, and there was nothing amusing about their sideways opening jaws and offset eyes. I got into my crevice with all the speed as they hit the murder lice. The water clouded with ichor and legs and pieces of carapace drifted before being snapped up by smaller fish. There was little pleasure from then on. Next came the giant rays that ate lice and flatfish alike. There was a particularly unpleasant squid that I only saved myself from by discharging the Tenkian cell into it. The rest of the time was a waking nightmare. I wasn't even safe in my crevice. A hammerwhelk joined me, and I ignored it, until it attached itself to my leg and drilled a centimetre diameter hole through my shell. I managed to pull it away and extract its siphon from my leg before it hit any arteries, but the pain was beyond belief, and I didn't know how to scream. I swore then that Chaplin Grable was going to really pay. I swore that if I got out of this, I would use the form I now had before being adapted back to human normal. I was going to eat him feet first. I stand by what remains of the gravcar. It is jammed between two shellfish-crusted slabs of rock where the world tide left it. My laughter sounds like coughing and the ratcheting of claves. I pulled the hammerwelks from the metal they had been clinging to when Grable lifted the craft and saw the holes they'd made through into the oh-so-delicate control circuits. Grable's hand, in his armoured glove, is gripping the control column. I don't know where the rest of him is. I shall move on now. The golem twos are in a nearby crevice. My fortune in the human world is assured. I'm heading for one of the sealed bases that were finally established here. It is about five hundred kilometres away, and there will be more world tides to be endured before I reach it. The Tenkian follows, operating on batteries taken from the Gravcar. 
I will survive. There you go. I hope you enjoyed that. We have some more by Neil Asher. Do you like to say a big thank you to Peter Seaton Clark for a fine narration and Neil Asher. Links to both their sites will be on the front of the website. That is Oral Delights, show number 93. Again, if you know, this is the big one. If you know an iPhone developer specialist, we need to get in touch with one. I'm going to give you like a heads up in a Metacast what's happening, where I think the Starship Sova might be going. Clues there with the iPhone developer. But I'll tell you all about that later on. Don't forget, if you want to do a fact article, if you want to do a flash fiction or narration, you can either send me an email, starshipsover at gmail.com, or flash fiction goes to sofaslush at gmail.com. Or just come on the front of the website and you'll find all in the guidelines. That is Oral Delights number 93. Until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting instalment of Set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.